0: So um, I'd like to introduce the first panel
1: um, and I'm going to introduce Elsa and James in a moment but just before I did do that I just want to show you this image um, on the uh, your left hand side um, of the fens and it's an image of, thank you, it's an image which shows the fens which is so that blue square is widening and the Fens is a bit north of that. That's um, a climate map of sort of 50 years into the future. And then on, the, on your right-hand side, you can see that area with the kind of black line around it. That's the kind of flood. That's, that shows the Fens in the Anglo-Saxon period, which was about 1,000 years ago. And since I found this image, this kind of flood map, of the Fens in the future and the kind of map of the Fens in the past. I've been really, really fascinated by the history of the Fens, the history of life on the Fens, the possibility that that gives us for thinking about the future of the Fens um, and what where rising is right on the kind of edge of that um, and really, you know, that question about what we can actually do from where we are the resources that we have available, the knowledge that we can all bring just feels incredibly um, pertinent because, you know, that's... We're in this... It's not like, you you know, now where we have this landscape that's not flooded, that's a blip. I mean, it was flooded before. It's going to be flooded again. And what does this blip give us? Like, where do we need to think Um, how can we think about our future uh, from within the blip (laughs) Um, and the reason that we invited James and Elsa to come and really kind of present the first session um, to ground and really sort of set some of the context for the whole day is really to think about really sort of what we can do, what we can learn from how we can uh, make a future together from where we are and this where we are is so urgent and important. Um, and I won't say more than that. I instead I will just introduce um, first of all I'm going to introduce James who will then speak for 10 minutes about his book. Um, and then I'll speak then I'll introduce Elsa who will also speak for 10 minutes about some of the amazing work that she's doing and engaged with. And then there'll be times time for questions and a conversation between the two of them, and then questions from the floor. So, first of all, I'd like to welcome James Boyce, um, who's a multi-award-winning Australian historian. His first book, Van Demon's Land, was described as the most significant colonial history since the fatal shore, 1835. And, um, uh, sorry, the fatal shore. And 1835, the founding of Melbourne and the conquest of Australia. Australia was the ages book of the year, while Born Bad, Original Sin and the Making of the Western World was hailed by the Washington Post as exhilarating, which is pretty good. Um, And his most recent book, Imperial Mud, The Fight for the Fens, is a post-colonial history of the destruction of the Fens of Eastern England. So I'd like to welcome James to speak to us about that work.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the welcome and thank you all for coming and the wonderful hospitality that you've been receiving here. Um, And It always feels a little bit impertinent to be talking about your home Um, and uh, I will get around to explaining why an Australian uh, is writing about the Fens. Most of my work, as Rosie's just said, has been in Australian colonial history. Um, but I, had, I was living in um, Norwich many years ago and I was a social worker with the elderly people's team and I, was, I had the country patch and it was really those stories of country folk that were telling me that was almost at the beginning of the book because they were describing a, really a pre-industrial way of life. They had memories that just absolutely fascinated me and they got me reading about this area that happened to be, by sort of coincidence really, also my ancestral homeland on my mother and father's side, which probably encouraged further reading and exploration. But I need to describe, really start with a picture of the fens, just because it is a lost, the sort of landscape we're talking about, I mean it's, it's provisionally lost. And it's a constantly changing and evolving landscape, so you can never sort of fix it in time. But the, the pre-drainage fen is sort of the, the fen that was that was that was here before the drainage schemes. It's important to get some idea in your head, because unfortunately, the last the last drainage occurred before as before photography, really before even the Romantic art movement. You know, which sort of has immortalised the Lake District and other areas. And we were, t- we were talking about the last really wild uh, part of lowland England that was left.
1: Can you just say what the dates were of yeah. the drainage?
2: So the drainage, the drainage, I mean, there has been some drainage in the Fens over even back in Roman times. I mean, people have always managed this landscape. There's, you know, there's been localised drainage. But if you like industrial scale, modern drainage began in the 17th century. Um, and it was... In, in Cambridge here, a bit later in some other parts of the Fens, But the area near us, uh, where, we're, where we're sitting now, began in the, in the 1630s. Um, and it, there were two aspects to, to, to what occurred. So we've got a landscape, we've got to imagine a landscape without these fixed rivers that we have now, these ordered rivers. It's much more, um, the, 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 as, you, as you know, the rivers of central England flow down and empty into the wash. And when they, when they came approaching this area, there's not much gradient. So they no longer formed straight, narrow banks. They started meandering all over the joint, not, not even the same place every year. And you get a sort of delta-type landscape. And these are very rich in human history. We know, you know from the Nile and the Indus and, that, and other places. Um, the Euphrates. These are the areas actually ideal for human habitation. Multiple food sources. The waters would recede sometime. It would recede in the summer months, and there'd be these nutrient-rich pastures in which you could put cattle, and which you could sow crops. And the slightly higher areas would be where the villages were, like Ely. You know, it's the Isle of Eily because it was the island of Eily. Um, and you know, so imagine if you want to imagine. You're probably closer to imagining the, the Amazonian Delta than the modern industrial farming landscape. If you want to, you know, these bodies of permanent water, but a lot of seasonal water, a lot of sort of different meandering water systems. It was a wetland, um, which was home to a, um, a population of, you know, we don't really know, but let's four or 5,000 commoners. Because the other aspect of this is that it was common land. Now that doesn't mean that it wasn't owned by someone in the medieval period, it was owned by the big monastic houses, um, later it had other landowners, but it had common rights over the whole area. The whole so these people were making their living from the incredibly rich resources of the wetland. Um, and so when the drainage came in, um, that was accompanied by what we, what's called in English history, enclosure which is the removal of all those common rights and the imposition of what we now understand as private property, which is actually quite a new thing. <laughs> we think it's eternal and some people will tell us it's eternal and it's almost innate to human nature as some of, some of us were talking about last night. But in fact, it's a fairly modern idea that if you own the land, you have the exclusive right to how it's going to be used, who's going to come on, onto that land, you know, who has the right to those resources. That's quite a modern idea. The commons, which is the much more common idea around the world and was, and was the traditional system in, in, in England, is, is that those rights of use of the land are decided by local customary practice. You know, so you might, you've might got the right to graze at certain times of the year, you've got the right to traverse the land, to collect fuel, to, to hunt fish, so on. These are all managed communally. So when they come in to enclose to drain the land, they also want to enclose the land, remove these common rights. So of course, unsurprisingly, the local people are in danger of losing not just their way of life, but their very home, you know, their whole way of being, their community, their their sort of um, really their whole universe. It's almost not metaphorical exaggeration to say resist. And fight those drainage schemes. And it's quite, it's not that difficult uh, to destroy drainage projects, you know, to go out at night and to, you know, to 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 to, to dig holes where holes are not meant to be. Um, and with local, you know, there's often a lot local courts and and, uh, and and even some local landowners who are on site as well. And so this sort of fierce struggle breaks out in the fens. It gets tangled up in the Civil War. Cromwell himself is from the Fens, initially, that's the commoners. You know, there's a long story there I won't go into, except to say, for now, that that struggle went on for 200 years. And don't just assume that it was all a forlorn loss, that technology and and modern capitalism and the modern state would have to triumph. In fact, in many areas, the drainage, uh, the the commoners succeeded. Um, You know, the, the southern Lincolnshire Fens weren't drained. Were, the first attempts at draining them was in the 1630s. It was, it, it didn't succeed to the late 18th century. You know, 150 years of, of victory, if you like. I mean, we can call that a defeat, but it, that doesn't sound like a defeat in my language. You know, um, in northern Lincolnshire, uh, you can still visit open medieval open fields, precisely because of the long history of resistance there. So, um, the that was uh, that. That story fascinated me. But what particularly fascinated me, as an Australian colonial his, historian, as I got more into that, was some of the overlaps with what was going on um, in the New World. Um, you know, obviously, some, often English history is compartmentalised from this imperial conquest that's going on, and the. there are are clear differences which we'll talk about. I think, I hope the differences are fairly obvious. I mean, it did make a difference that you were in England and that you were white and that you were, you know, I mean, there's not a parallel between what happened to the Australian Aboriginal people, a direct parallel with what happened to Fenlanders. I mean, we're not talking about genocide here, but there are also some real parallels. It's not just that the Dispossession of the commoners and this enclosure that happened in this in this rich wetland was um, uh, it was was about dispossession. It was also about vilify, vilifying the commoners, vilifying the land. You know, we all carry that idea of the marsh as some sort of unproductive wasteland. Where did that come from? That idea has a history. It's created by the drainers. If you read the Middle Middle Medieval accounts. Where the, you know the, a lot of people are, are getting wealth, very wealthy off the wealth of the fens. There's descriptions of the beauty of this country, you know, yeah. the wonder and the richness of this country. This idea that the swamps is, are unhealthy, that they you know that's something that improving the land and improving the people. This is an imperial discourse, um, and the, the 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 drainage of the fens went on in partnership with the state. It wasn't just a sort of private enterprise. It's sometimes. Presented, it was very much a state-private enterprise collaboration, and so that the it's not just a precursor to the empire; it's part of the imperial project. I would argue. So we can, you know, we can talk a more about that later, but let's leave it there for now. Yeah.
1: Thanks so much, James. I think that sense of how much has started and been has been kind of rehearsed mm. in this area just really, really, really struck me when I read your book. Just Mm. the fact, you know, we're really there on the edge of so much. Mm. Um, And we'll come to that in the conversation, but I'd love to bring you in now, Mm. Elsa. Um, And similarly, I heard you speak um, and uh, was also really struck by a lot of the work that you're doing. Um, and how you know we'll talk about this in the conversation but um, perhaps I'll introduce you first Um, so Elsa Noteman Dr Elsa Noteman is a junior research fellow and director of studies for geography at Queen's College Cambridge she works on issues related to collective struggle over land and housing with a current focus on urban vacancy and efforts to take back slash take over property and she also writes about organizing within educational spaces and when I first heard you speak I was just really struck by um, the very kind of direct work that you're doing looking at uh, the University of Cambridge and how you know that university which also has this incredibly long history has been kind of continuing to secure it's very kind of uh, very sort of privatised approach to land ownership, and kind of excluding approach to land ownership, which you can just feel physically in the city as you walk around. Mm-hmm. And I was so interested in this in the work that you're doing kind of from that context. And I think, you know, having you both together and we'll talk together in the conversation um, is amazing in terms of that kind of past and future uh, here where we are. So um, Elsa, I'd love uh, to to hand over to you, and maybe we can start the slides as well, please.
0: Yeah, so thank you so much, Rosie. Um, And thanks, everyone, for for coming, and I really look forward to talking to everyone here and learning from everyone here. As I'll talk a little bit about, um, I'm a newcomer to Cambridge, and as you might tell from my accent, I'm from the US. My research is primarily focused on land struggles in the US context. So actually, I'm very interested to have this conversation, both from settler colonial societies, now talking about the UK and the differences and similarities. But we can sort of get to that in the conversation. Um, So yes, I I, I work a lot on not only uh, land struggles, but then I've also written very critically around the university and the role of the university. And now I'm trying to think more about how those come together within the city of Cambridge. So I'm just going to read because I want to stay on time and leave time for conversation. Um, We have a tendency to ramble in academia, so I acknowledge that. Um, So I arrived in Cambridge in September 2020 amid pandemic lockdowns. Walking around Cambridge, I was struck by the ways that the city was cut up by college and university spaces, an urban landscape marked by extravagant yet efficient gates and walls seen in the photos in the PowerPoint, um, which I took around central Cambridge, and I think this no, really, this iterative no is reflected in the architecture, which was made more apparent in the midst of a pandemic that accentuated the importance of access to public and outdoor space. As a newcomer, I found Cambridge difficult to navigate as I learned where I could and could not access, including the River Cam. And slide, please. (laughs) Uh, An experience which seems to be a common one with a local report earlier this year highlighting that many children living in Cambridge have never seen the river that flows through it. Even finding public bridges to cross the river was a challenge. I was happy to come across this helpful sign in shock directing me to one of the few public bridges in the city center. Slide. So universities uh, often have a conflictual relationship with the communities in which they are embedded. A tension that is expressed in Cambridge by the phrase, town and gown divide. And for those of you that don't know, people wear gowns in Cambridge. So um, that's where the gown comes from. It was new to me coming here. Um, While not unique to Cambridge, I found the social spatial separation between town and gown especially exaggerated as it it was reinforced by a history of enclosure and hostility, as well as in the city's landscape and architecture. Walls you can't see over, gates which remain locked, Science of what behaviors are not tolerated. And there are a plethora of private fellows' gardens, pre- president's gardens, uh, spaces for um, student sports that are all enclosed behind walls and gates. In recent years, Cambridge has been ranked as the least equal city in the UK, reflecting severe income disparities among residences Uh, driven not only by the university and its colleges, but the related growth of the so-called Silicon Fen, which I think is an interesting Mm -hmm. name, of tech and science, uh, life science uh, firms that have emerged in part because of Cambridge (laughs) University. This inequality has been exacerbated by COVID-19, as in other places, with more than 2,500 households made homeless or threatened with eviction since the start of the pandemic. At the same time, the University of Cambridge recently announced raising two billion uh, pounds as part of a fundraising campaign. So slide. The extent of land ownership by Oxbridge Colleges has long been highlighted, with an estimated 126,000 acres of land in the UK owned by Cambridge and Oxford Colleges. A few years ago, The the Guardian estimated that collectively, Cambridge and Oxford own more land than the Church of England with their property profile across the UK worth at least 3.5 billion pounds, and actually that's probably a a severe underestimation. Um, Important work has been spearheaded by students in Oxford and now in Cambridge to make these holdings public in the service of accountability and justice. There are also increasing efforts to interrogate the connections of this land uh, ownership to colonial expropriation, as well as to the transatlantic slave trade and importantly, to think about the potential of reparations and redistribution. The challenges of this work relate not only to the wariness on the part of these institutions to make the information public, but in some cases, they are not even clear on the full extent of what they own, which itself sells something about the extent of their ownership. Given this context, the question for me and my colleague, Camilla Penny, uh, who is actually now in New Zealand (laughs) and a geoscientist is, What is our responsibility as teachers and researchers in an institution that benefits from uneven access to and ownership of land? And relatedly, how can we mobilize our access to information and resources to support the important work that individuals and community groups are already doing locally and nationally to preserve and expand access to land? We therefore started a project in 2021 called Accessing Land Justice in which we sought to engage students and the public in conversations around ongoing efforts to preserve threatened rights of way or paths that anyone can legally use as a means of opening up broader conversations around land justice, engaging students in participatory action research, and developing related open access educational tools. Uh, Slide. Oh wait, one more slide. Uh, One more slide, actually. (laughs) Uh, this one, yes, okay. This is one of uh, the paths that we're actually um, making a claim to, um, which is used by commuters from Coton to come to Cambridge, as well as bikers and walkers, and it's actually owned by Jesus College. Um, and I would say that two of the student interns are here, Claudia and Anna, so you feel free to talk to them throughout the day as well. <laughs> um, so the focus on rights of way was in part due to the the approaching deadline of January 1st, 2026, by which point rights-of-way, which existed prior to 1949 and remain unclaimed, will no longer be able to be officially recognized. They'll be lost. The Ramblers Association launched a project, Don't Lose Your Way, to engage members of the public in the extensive work of researching and registering an estimated 49,000 miles of paths across England and Wales, And while the government recently indicated its indication to do away with this deadline, it still remains unchanged. So as part of this project, we've held several public workshops with practitioners, activists, scholars, artists, students, and residents of Cambridge. And slide. This is a creative trespass we had on one of the um, uh, unregistered rights of way. Um, And are now working with some community groups, along with several student interns, to identify and apply to preserve threatened public rights of way in and around Cambridge. Through this research, we are also supporting other local efforts to understand and increase access and ownership to land in Cambridge and work collaboratively to develop an open source curriculum that can be shared more broadly in other contexts. Through this work, we aim to mobilize while thinking critically about the tools currently available to resist ongoing enclosure and to support relations to the land that do not foreground exclusion. In a time of climate crisis, pandemic, and economic inequality, it is critically important, as in James's book, to trace historic and ongoing uh, resistances and actually existing alternatives. And this tracing is not only through time, following histories of resistance in a particular place, as in the Fens, but also mapping across spaces, where efforts at land expropriation and reclamation connect across the globe. Something that I've been thinking a lot about in my research, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you a little bit more. Um, and slide, oh, yeah, this is oh, yeah, this is my uh, attempt. Um, uh, I did a creative mapping workshop with uh, some colleagues and students in 2020, and this was sort of my attempt to represent connections of my work across time and space. Um, So at the intersection of these crises, more people are beginning to push back and take up space, advocating not only for the preservation and creation of rights of way, but to expand rights of access, such as through the campaign for the rights to roam, working to reclaim land through collective ownership, such as through community land trusts, opening up space by creating village and town greens, and struggling for land reparations and spatial justice, as seen in the work of Land in Our Names and the Black Land and Spatial Justice Project. Slide. Uh, so during the pandemic, as access to green space has become more important, there have also been some local resistances to the university and college's privatization of land in Cambridge. In a recent local example, last year when King's College tried to prohibit activities on the River Cam and Grantchester Meadows, a campaign demanding public use of the meadows led the college to decide not to enforce the new bans on the use of the river and the meadow. Hmm. In addition, people have begun using the grounds in front of King's College as a space to sit and picnic activity not formally tolerated by a college where only fellows are allowed to walk on the grass. While these public uses of private space are not legally protected at the moment, Mm -hmm. they do represent efforts to challenge the exclusivity of this property and highlight the limits of its enforcement. Slide. In yet a perhaps clear demonstration of what Nick Hayes calls the magic of property boundaries in the Book of Trespass, as shown here, when the meadows flooded, and in James's book, this is sort of the, the, the reflooding of the fens as, well, as well, where nature reveals over and over that it has no respect for property. I suggest that this denaturalization of property is important because it allows us to imagine and enact alternatives uh, and to consider a future outside our current bounded thinking. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm really excited about being at this event and thinking about this space and thinking with you all about the future of land more generally. So, Mm. thanks. Mm. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much to both of you. Um, And I wanted to start with a question just back to you, James, Mm. which is really... um, what it is, and I think we've found, we're finding real clues in that, particularly in the way that you ended just now, Elsa, but just to speak a little to what feels timely for you about your book, which was published very recently.
2: Mm. By the way, there's something quite beautiful about that, isn't
1: there? Yeah, there is. <laughs> I mean, you know,
2: something hopeful as well as, I mean, the paradox. Yeah. You know, as long as it's not our back garden, of course, they're talking about <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, in terms of timeliness, it is actually, my book did come out in COVID time, so it has been out mm. for a couple of years, but it feels like a, a new book for me, because this has been my first chance to sort of really talk about it in the last few weeks, um, other than online. Um, the, the timeliness for, for me, I mean, I, I think it's impossible really for us to do anything, you know, without, Living with the environmental crisis, um, with all of our writing, all of our art, all of our being, all of our consumer choices. I mean, they're not always. We're not always conscious, thinking in those deliberate terms, and that includes in my book. I mean, I'm not. It's not as if I've got an environmental agenda in which I'm writing the book. Um, but it it serves the background for for all of our living at the moment, this this, this looming current catastrophe for, for so many other species, these extraordinary challenges, the, the, the rates of change, the scenarios that the scientists are pointing to us. The, I mean, this is what we live with, isn't it? Um, and we also live with the struggle to not give in to despair. Um, And I'm now conscious of being a, you know, ageing fellow and, 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 and I feel the responsibility that the failure of my generation in terms of its number one responsibility of handing over this earth to the next generation. And when I talk to, you know, young people, it's... You know, there's an element of shame, you know, that of what we've, what we've done, <laughs> and um, and so what I I think, even though again, it's not necessarily some sort of deliberate strategy as a historian. I mean, you work with this as you know, like creative projects, and I'm 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 also working with the material as it is, with the sources as it is, of trying to convey truth, you know. Um, but the the environmental the It's timely, I hope, um, that what we need are stories that connect us with the fact that how things are now is not how they innately or inevitably are, Um, and that we are not alone in a sense, you know, in our our struggle. Like, I mean... it's very easy to feel like the, the past generations are just the problem, or our Western consciousness is just the problem, or our Western religion is just the problem, or our Western culture is just the problem. In fact, there is no such thing as one Western culture, one Western history, one Western story. It's been contested, and there's been multiple... And one of the, one of the most contested is this idea of how we live with, with the land, And so we need, I hope that the book is timely in the sense that it shows that in this area of England, right in the, you know, what is it, a hundred miles from London, a bit over, you know, right in the centre of empire, if you like, um, there was this vast common, this, this, this extraordinary, rich, bountiful, natural land that had been home to people for thousands of years and was being worked and managed and lived off and, and wealth extracted. Um, and when that land was threatened, it was defended. You know, it was defended sometimes at the cost of lives. I mean, you know, the British Army was employed in the friends. Um, the, the, the The struggle went on for a long time and they would, what they were defending was not just common rights as it's now, you know, the commoners had to be reduced to a sort of rather reductionist thinking for it to have any protection at all. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that has to fit into modern law and, you know, it's this set of rights. And, of course, we all have Mm -hmm. to stand up for that, don't we? You know, we have to stand up for the rights of way. These residual things that were left to us, but they're really small Mm -hmm. things compared with what the common was because the common was centred in relationship, really, ultimately. Relationship with the land that wasn't centred on Mm -hmm. modern ideas of property and relationship with each other. It wasn't an individualised thing. It was a communal thing. So, um, and people defended, like we're defending, in a totally different context, or not totally different, but a a very different context. So it's not a case of just applying what's past to the present. Uh, We live in a, you know, we have distinctive challenges of the 21st century. We also have uh, different expectations and, and, and many liberating new ways of thought that we don't want to give up. But I hope that it can be an encouragement, a solace, but also an opening of the imagination and a source of strength to know that people have always cared for country and cared for their community and have acted to defend it. And that a lot of the ideas that we are told is inevitable and innate and you know that, that there is no alternative to all have a history as well and can be traced and have been contested over time. Including in the Western world, you know, including in in England, and including quite close to the very heart of the Empire itself, you know. Yeah. So, so I hope it's a source of opening up our thinking, and 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 give, and, uh, and uh, a source, in a paradoxical way of hope, even though the story is one of you know quite a uh, a sad story and, and tragic story on many levels as of course so many stories of the empire are. They are and historians are often now looking for paradox and contradiction and, and particularly recognising the agency of dispossessed people and indigenous peoples and you know that these people are not just victims. These people, are, people have always acted and um, you know we're, we're, we stand in we stand in that in that history as well as the destructive history. you know, Looking reality in the eye, we need to be able to see all of this, yeah.
1: Thank you so much, James. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to ask the same question to you, Elsa, mm-hmm. and you've touched on it a bit, but just the kind of urgency to speak more directly to the urgency in your work right now.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I guess a follow-on from what James was saying. Um, You know, I mean, certainly the climate crisis and um, access to um, land and water are increasingly going to be important um, going into the future. Um, But I also sort of want to maybe make a point also about um, the law and the the, um, turn towards criminalization of trespass in the UK. Um, The police crime sentencing courts bill just went into an effect at the end of June Of course, as many of you probably know, criminalized as forms of protest, but also um, forms of trespass and specifically, you know, traveler communities and the use of um, unregistered occupations of space. So um, I think this is, um, it sort of raises the urgency of what the stakes are of reclaiming land. I think coming from the, the, the states where the stakes of trespassing are quite high in a country with more guns than people, um, and very sort of rigid property boundaries. Coming here, where there, is, there has been some uh, sort of acceptance um, of sort of a historic rights of use and, and forms of trespass, now turning towards a criminalization of that, that's very concerning. Um, and so I think there's there's ongoing efforts to try to push back against that and to think not only about legal tactics um, to try to reclaim and um, expand uh, our rights to land, but also illegal tactics, um, Mm -hmm. recognizing that actually laws are often um, the very things that are enclosing space and excluding people. Um, So I think we can learn from history in those ways, but we can also learn from contemporary movements, which are challenging unjust laws. And to me, that's really present at this current moment, too. Mm. Totally.
1: And I think um, I had a question for you, James, which is very closely connected to that, actually, which is I really felt that your book articulates really clearly how the state forms its laws and governance systems to preserve power in the hands of the few. And can you just say a bit more about how that played out and was sort of rehearsed within the context of the fens and the enclosures?
2: Yeah, well, what we're dealing with in the 17th century is the rise of the the all-powerful centralised state. It's still not fully emerged in our contemporary idea, but so the the idea of the nation state is, is, is also got a history. And the idea that of a nation state that can impose its will all around its territory has a has a relatively recent mm. history. Um, a lot of these things were done locally. Admittedly, I'm not saying with justice, <laughs> but not necessarily by the by, by, by the by the state. And so the assertion, this drug that these drainage schemes are really interesting in the 17th century, the ones that are happening so close to to, to where we're sitting now. In that they are a partnership between the state and so what we might call private enterprise. They called them adventurers. They were <laughs> speculators, really. So they would they would um, put up the capital from the, the capital's coming from the you know emergence, the beginning of capitalism, and there's this surplus capital, and they're they're hoping then when the when the land is drained, well, the idea is once the land is drained and then enclosed, remember, so that they'll have this highly productive, you know, rich farmland that they can then have tenant farmers on who'll be paying them rent. So they'll be claiming all the income from the land. Well, while it's a common wetland, it's all these diverse sources of wealth going in all sorts of directions. Very hard to monopolise that wealth. Um, very hard to claim it exclusively. Um, so it's a state-private enterprise partnership. It's often presented, even in histories today, the drainage as if it's, you know, the... The Earl of Bedford and uses his Dutch drainage engineers as if it's all about a private enterprise thing. But in fact the the drainage of the Fens, as with the whole imperial project elsewhere, it's a state private okay. enterprise partnership. They're working, they're working together. Now there's contradictions within that, and you know that's that's also true. They're like the commoners are also appealing to Parliament, appealing to state, like in, again, like um, uh, invaded peoples across the empire were doing. I mean, there's multiple, resistance is not just a a Western movie, you know, with firing firing guns at you know the cowboys. It's actually resistance can take so many forms, and that you know you people. We are practising that today, you know, and we know, you know, we, we, we do all sorts of things, don't we? Sometimes that can be even involve accommodation and adaptation as well as things like petitions and court action, you know. These things were used in the 17th century as well. Parliament it got very caught up in the, in the Civil War, as I said, in the, in the debates leading up to the Civil War. So local courts often initially were on the side of the commoners in a paradoxical way. So, and it really, really, the, the triumph of the drainage schemes is, can is is ultimately dependent, um, but on the growth of the what we would really start to see as the modern state by the late eighteenth century, where they are in control of the courts now, they they can actually uh, impose so that people who are trespassing, now people who are putting their stock into what was common land. Destroying the you know the the crops of the of the New tenant farmers the protection of the colonizers colonizers were also brought into the fens um, so again similar to the New World pattern mainly sort of Northern European we uh, do French and uh, Dutch Protestant refugees <laughs> so similar people who who were going off to North, uh, North. at the very same time people are leaving Boston seeking religious freedom. Uh, in the in the new world, similar people seeking religious freedom are arriving in Boston to be colonisers on the enclosed land, and so the state the state is working um, in a sort of uh, to enforce this enclosure, often not just on the on the ordinary commoners, but even some of the local you know landowners, and that's dependent on that on its on it, developing the infrastructure of the modern state, what we take for granted, that you know, they can impose a law, and then that law can be enforced, and the people can be punished. And it's really not until the late 18th century that that can be done with confidence. And then it is done with great severity. And they even do things which, are seem, you know, which seem to be contrary to law, like, again, what's common around the empire. Um, it's very difficult to punish, uh, to find who's the perpetrator. Who actually destroyed that drainage work? Who dug that hole? Who, you know, who, who did... So they start to punish whole villages, which those of you who are familiar with, you know, the tragic story that unfolded around the empire know only too well. That that's that was the classic tactic, and of course, it's not confined to the British Empire. You know, it was done in Vietnam. It's done in all guerrilla guerrilla campaigns because you don't know who's the farmer, who's the enemy, who's the friend, and so the way to the way that. Um, it, it, it's, it's often done uh, the final resort is to punish people communally mm-hmm. yeah and that, that that went on as well yeah
1: thank you um, I'm just conscious of time yeah. I'm wanting to open up questions to the floor because um, we are running a little bit up behind what we're gonna do is just we've, we have an hour and a half scheduled for lunch so we've got a bit of a buffer um, but we won't. Don't worry. We won't cut your lunch too short. Um, but I just had one question that I'd like to ask both of you to to share your thoughts on just before opening it up to the floor, which is really about the future. And as the kind of we're seeing, you know, in this image which we've kept up here, as kind of the water levels rise again around us, what futures are available to us? What kind of tools and tactics? do we have? And I'd like to invite Elsa, you to talk about that first.
0: Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a big question, and I, I hope that we get to talk collectively about that um, going forward. I mean, I think um, you know, there are uh, a number of legal tools, as we talked about, in terms of town greens and um, uh, rights of way, but also efforts to try to push the limits of that through rights to roam. Um, through um, reparations and reclamations of land. Um, so I think uh, the solutions are already here. They're already being created. There's a lot of innovation about um, thinking about you know, the kind of legal and e- currently illegal tools that we have at our disposal. Um, I think uh, a lot of that comes out of creative work too in terms of thinking about speculative fiction. Um, uh, that really allows us to um, kind of get out of our bounded thinking about what the possibilities are for the future. And so I think actually there's been a turn to kind of think um, more creatively um, um, about property and land, um, which is you know something I like to think about also is um, uh, rather than focusing on the forms of land use that we have, you know, historically been doing, or in the contemporary moment, but also our land relations. What are our sort of new and um, iterative land relations uh, over time, and how can we imagine that going forward? But, but certainly, I don't want to be a downer. But it, it it is also a scary moment um, uh, in terms of thinking about the, the increase, you know, crackdown on on protest um, and uses of land and increasing privatization of space. Um, but there is ongoing resistance that I think we have to hold on to. And as we see, have seen, I think, under the, the pandemic, there's been a real um, recognition of the importance of land, and I think people are coming together in, in, in more innovative ways um, in order to try to enact some of those. And so there's little spaces opening up.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: James, what would you like to uh, reflect on?
2: Well, uh, just... I did want to mention just briefly that in case um, some of you might not have heard of the Great Fen project, just because it touches on I think some of the things we're talking about. It's a it's a nature restoration project where they're trying to link some of the existing reserves, Woodwalton Fen and Home Fen. It's, it's it's much of it covers the site of the old Whittlesey Mere, which was the largest lowland lake in England, that was only, you know, its drainage in the mid-1850s. Really marked the end of the old Fen, and the Great Fen Project. Who I've you know I've had some conversations with now, and um, there, what's so exciting about it is it's not just nature restoration and sort of nature out there, sort of trying to restore some inverted commons wilderness. It's actually got farming and food production and new ways and at at its very centre, and it's dealing with this contradiction and problem that has always been in the Fens. The peat dries out and disappears when it, it, you know, once it dries out, it it, it goes. And so there's nothing really you can do in the, um, uh, to stop that. You can slow it down through various techniques other than getting it wet, getting the soil wet again. Um, and of course, as Elsie said, you know, with the challenges of climate change, that's even more real. Um, and exaggerating, many of the areas of the Fens now are well below sea level. So the amount of energy involved in pumping that water out is getting higher and higher as the land sinks further and further. And so this is this is both a crisis and it's also a, really an opportunity because it's forcing everybody, even, you know, even, uh, even those who are making the most money out of the current status quo, are confronting this environmental reality that the peak is disappearing, the easy... And the landscape that we're dealing with is a provisional landscape, as we talked about. It's always varied over time through waters. In fact, the modern industrial landscape that we see now is really only a post-war one. Um, even because, I mean, we could, as I described in the book, there were many chapters after the drainage. It wasn't like all the, te- the technology drained it, and then the story was over. Nature, as we saw in the slide, it's not didn't take it quite so easily. And areas kept re-flooding. Um, and with, they thought the Victorians thought they'd finally sorted it all out with steam power, but in fact that was provisional as well. So it's a sort of the Great Fen project. Is, 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 is using three things, and this is, I think, what we need to use generally. I mean, it's using science, it's using memory, you know, that Simon Sharma said, you know, that the, his, his source of hope, and what is that humans might be... Uh, ..so to prop, we've done so many bad things, but the big hope is that we're more retentive yeah. than, than is often assumed. We have memory, you know, we have, we have those stories tradition if you like so they're, they're trying to look at traditional land use practices but also adapt them with science and the other thing the other thing I, I just wanted to mention briefly because as I'm getting older I just sort of I also sort of like to say what really matters to me now um, and you know the great hope as well as the great problem of course is human beings I mean human beings are actually really extraordinary you now if you look stand back as a historian, and I mean, you can do this from all sorts of disciplines, of course. It doesn't have to be from history. But the human capacity and ingenuity and inventiveness is quite amazing. But, and but what we have now is a human potential and capacity far beyond that's ever existed in history before. Not just because there's more of us, but because there's more people with, 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 who've had a chance, the privilege of education, more people who have the chance for sort of a a day like we're having today, just to take time out of work and sit Mm -hmm. and talk. But also, of course, because it's not just people like me running the world anymore, thank goodness, or, you know, we've got a bit of a way to go. Um, But it's not, you know, it's not sort of older white males, you know, so there's this resource of suddenly we've got bringing to the possibility for change all the diversity and richness of our culture which you know we're not trying to return to a pre-industrial life which was still a you know, obviously a patriarchy in another form and everything we've got we've got we've got women we've got lgbt people we've got the diversity of, of, our, of our modern world to you know, um, artists who look at this stuff writers who are looking at it um, and so that's my my source of you know source of hope um, thank you. that we don't really know fully what we're capable of but we're going to have to be capable of a lot because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> it's a and we are potentially
1: thank you yeah. um a good note to end on and i just i think we've got time for a couple of questions um will um caroline uh looks like you have a question and I think we've got another one over here. So we've also got one over there, but we've also got a roving mic over there. So um, can I just go
3: to to you first of all? Um, okay, thank you very much. Um, it, it's a way in a question for both of you. Um, I'm taking elements of what you've, you, you've said, uh, particularly... Um, the, the last, um, the last point you made, James, looking at what um, the Great Fen project. Mm. Um, so this is interesting in the context of um, a charity, the Wildlife Trust, yes. who actually bought the land in yeah. order to try new ways. Uh, first, first of all, to try to wet the land, mm. and to try new ways to. Uh, Create crops and uh, yeah. and grow things yes. uh, and restore obviously the land to its original uh, yeah. status. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I find interesting is that they had to buy the land. Okay, so it's yeah. it's it's going from private ownership to another form. It's not private because the Wildlife mm-hmm. Trust is a yeah. charity. Yeah. So to to another kind of ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm yeah. sort of looking at. The idea of you know, the land and ownership on what we own and yeah, we don't yeah, yeah, own, yeah, yeah. and um, also yeah. thinking about a place like Wising Art Center, which mm-hmm. again is owns a lot of land and is, is a charity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how is there mm-hmm. um, you know a solution? Is that the best possible sh- solution that charities start buying land and sharing the land and looking at new ways of, mm-hmm. of expanding? You know, of using the land in between, in a more ecological way. Great, thank you. That's a good.
1: Can I suggest, because we've just got not that long before that we must begin the next panel, but can I suggest passing that question to Elsa, because that really reminds me of some of the conversations we had. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that's a great question. How do we get out, outside of the ownership model of property that we're embedded in? Mm.
4: Um,
0: and I, I, there are um, experiments with that, such as the community land trust model, which sort of preserves collective land ownership over the long term, through, usually at least in the states for a 99-year lease. Um, So I think uh, there's also limited equity cooperatives that are forming um, to recognize sort of holding down costs for cooperatives. Cooperatives are not just something that are for us or the wealthy. Um, So there are different models of recognizing collective land ownership that do exist in the law. And then there's also squatted uh, takeovers of land and experiments that are happening as well that don't rely on ownership of land. I think the problem of there is uh, you know uh, that there's a precarity there that they might be displaced. However, groups that I work with in the states are aware of the precariousness of property in general. Whether they're a renter or they're a homeowner, you know, foreclosure and eviction are real. And so, for them, actually taking over homes um, isn't any more precarious as as those forms um, as well. So. I think there are multiple models, both in terms of the legal structure, but also thinking outside of the legal structure as well.
1: Thank you.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, And we just had another question from yourself. Um, And we'll just bring the mic over to you, just coming from behind you here.
5: Okay. thank you. Um, Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say a little bit about timeliness and then about access. So I think with timeliness, firstly, it was wonderful for me to be working out in and Fen with some children, some teenagers that don't normally access that, that space. The quote that you gave about children not having seen the river in Cambridge came from a project that I'd been working on in Um, Arbury, and then I was doing some work with some children there, it was the week that the police and crime, uh, Bill had just gone through and we looked out to the sedge and having read your book I was able to say and this is what the Fen Tigers were fighting for and to have that spark and be able to then relate it to other activist movements uh, social justice and environmental justice movements that have come out of the Fens Mm -hmm. which I think again having read your book is literally something that is in the water Mm -hmm. of Fenland but that is so lost now and I think that's really pertinent to try and find and connect to um, that that fight and the thought that things can change, the land can change we're so, we're so precious about what we hold on to um, and when relating that back to um, uh, public space and open space but actually how it's still so very exclusive and we see that so much in Cambridge and I say that there's high, high walls and high art and it keeps people out of the whole of the city um, there's, there's a common uh, land in uh, the area, the, the ward that I live in, in Abbey, which is the you know the, the most deprived ward, and COVID changed it slightly, and that you'd see uh, residents using that space much more because it didn't feel so encroached on by gown mm-hmm. <laughs> as the river, the river use changed, and then just how, and I've nearly finished. Sorry, just how know um, yeah, Helen and I were recently doing some work with with children exploring. Um, that, what public space meant, and young children talking about. Well, it might be public space, but I know a young traveller saying to me, "I know it's not open to me. I know I can't go there." Or another nine-year-old, wasn't it, Helena, we were talking to, and saying um, uh, that it might be public, but lots of you know, you might not be able to go there because of your race, because of your gender, because you have haven't got enough money. Mm-hmm. So. We have common spaces, but we still have, you're talking about, you know, communities and being connected hmm. and um, there, there are so many barriers <laughs> yeah. to using land that isn't necessarily about ownership too. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: that's right. Really Sorry, that was a long, so I was long. You said you were yeah. quick. Mm-hmm. Sorry,
5: thank you.
1: Bob. No, thank oh, you. For joke. Joke. <laughs> um, just in the, fir- in the last few minutes, does anybody have another question that they'd like to ask our panellists? I think we have one more hand up
2: can look at us? yeah
1: did, did you... can a oh it was yeah, okay great um, do we have any questions from the chat okay great what? go uh, ahead but would you mind just waiting for quick. the mic I
4: would like hang on would
1: you oh, just uh, mind yeah. waiting for the mic just because we're live streaming so they yeah, won't yeah. be able Quite, to I, really forget.
4: Forget. I, I was struck by the silicon Fen. I hadn't come across that phase, and learning about how Silicon Valley, a relatively small area in California, has decimated that San Francisco area, really, um, that would be a major concern for me, looking forward. How is that science, life science industry, which is global... Mm-hmm. coming into our area is massive, I think. Mm-hmm. And the, it's all in the innovation, blah, blah, blah. It all sounds great, but it's all in the hands of the wrong people. <laughs> you know, it's not public. It's going to mm-hmm. be... A, that public-private enterprise has completely swung mm-hmm. in terms of ownership and control. So I'm, I'm grateful for having... I didn't know there was a Silicon Sand phase, <laughs> but I think we need to be really... How we work with that to limit their encroachment. If you go through Water Beach now, the development that's gone on the last five years as I drive down the A-10, it's like, what the hell is that about? Suddenly, it's just everywhere. Mm. So, yeah, that's really good. We need to look at that. Pardon? Ex-military. It's Mm -hmm. Mm ex-military, yeah. So, yeah, that's really Do
1: you have any sort of final reflections? I mean, I think, you know, absolutely both of you have really summed up kind of how, you know, these questions remain so sort of urgent here right from where we are. Um, any sort of final words that you'd like to close with or questions for us generally to sort of take with us along the day?
0: Um, I guess just one, one thing sort of reflecting on, I'm sorry, what's your name? Hillary. Hillary, Hillary's point, um and I'd love to talk to you more about your work with children. Um, you know, something that, that, that I've been thinking about with my own young toddler is how to explain access to land and where he can't access. Because there's this, this sort of assumption that um, we're sort of imbor- born with sort of innate understanding of ownership and, and property, but actually, very young children mm. sort of I, go where they w- go where they want, and they encounter things that tell them, send them messages that they're not welcome. But they don't start out from that place. Um, you know, how do you describe what a wall is to a two-year-old? that it means you can't go on this other side. Um, that you can be on this grass, but you can't be on that mm. grass. Um, and so I just sort of, I, I think children, like it's trying to think back about when we didn't sort of have all these messages about where we can and cannot go, maybe is sort of a, an imaginative moment where we can think kind of creative, creatively. At least for me, that's been sort of, um, a moment of thinking, oh, yeah, I, I don't want to be inf- reinforcing these, um, these boundaries um, or these you know, exclusions, but how can we sort of think back on that before we're given all these messages very explicitly and the violence that comes with that um, yeah. over time. But anyway, um, thank yeah, you. Yeah.
1: Um, James, any last words from you? And, yeah. you know, there will be loads of moments for yeah. us all to sort of connect over lunch mm. and you know, drinks well. at the end.
2: I'd probably just finish agreeing with with what you were saying, Carolyn, about the, I mean, the Great Fen Project got uh, eight million pounds, I think, to buy those couple of farms that are linking, linking the two reserves. Now that's no model, is it, for in terms of what we're, I mean, it's very necessary for them because on those farms they can model new ways of farming, they can experiment. They can do some different things. I mean, there's even a possibility of bringing in European bison, I <laughs> understand. You know, there's also, even I said jokingly, you know, what about rice? And I thought that was a joke, but apparently even rice is a possibility. There's all sorts of possibility, but obviously that's not a model. But what we do have and what you have in England, I think, in particular, the idea, because commons have taken different forms all over the world, you know, they're by definition local. But what you have in in England is a tradition of the Commons that actually did not depend on land ownership. Mm -hmm. That was precisely quite separate from the question, all of England, at least since the Norman invasion, has been owned by somebody. You know, there's not such a thing in England as unowned land for many, many centuries, but Commons existed with that. and so you've actually got in England a, tradi- a tradition that, is, that can be drawn on that is really radically different from how we're currently understanding private ownership. And I think that provides the potential for doing, doing some exciting things and starting to open up thinking and policy thinking in a way that's not dependent on really an impossible scheme of buying up areas that can be managed sort of sustainably around, with some sort of boundary around them. Great. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much. Um, That was a really wonderful way to begin the day. Um, And I'd like
0: now to hand over to uh, my colleagues for the next session.